That gets that still gets me. I know it's gonna get me every time, <laughs> especially because she's just like recording in progress. Yeah. Uh, it just sounds like such a weirdo. Hello, everybody. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Weirdest Thing podcast. I realized in the last episode that we did not do this. My name is Amelia Ampuero. I'm Scotty Milder. And we are your hosts of this podcast called The Weirdest Thing. And we're ready to blow your minds with strange tales from the internet this week. <laughs> Yeah, and mine is a strange one. And it's one that I think a lot of people have probably heard this one, or at least heard of it. I don't know how many people actually know the details, but mm-hmm. I'm going to start with a little bit of a cold open. Great. So back in 1955, a part-time amateur astronomer, car part salesman, and UFO researcher named Morris K. Jessup. Man. Yeah. <laughs> Did a little bit of everything. <laughs> <laughs> Um, In between selling carburetors and looking at the stars, he was writing books about UFOs. And he published one in 1955 called The Case for the UFO. And uh, a big part of what he talked about was like possible methods of propulsion that a UFO might use. And he talked about the possibility that alien technology might in some way might use Einstein's unified field theory as a way of designing its engine. So basically the unified field theory, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because I don't understand it. (laughs) Okay. I was like, oh, Jesus. Literally, I have one sentence to say about it. Uh, It's never been proven, but it was Einstein's theory where he attempted to find a way to merge the forces of gravity and electromagnetism into a single fundamental field. And the idea, if what I understand is correct, is if you're able to harness this fundamental field you can essentially create like time warps like warping of space to then move faster than the speed of light as that's too too hard for my brain right now yeah and that's why that's exactly as much as i'm going to try to explain it (laughs) yay um but so he wrote this book and morris jessup was kind of an interesting guy he started as an astronomer and actually a professional astronomer i forgot to write down which observatory that he worked for but he ended up leaving kind of and it sounds like kind of embittered by the experience mm-hmm. i think not being recognized for his groundbreaking theories type of thing you know so, so he was course, like i'm faking my theories and i'm going home. <laughs> yeah and i think a lot of people were like uh this guy is fucking nuts um so yeah, okay. he ended up becoming a car part salesman but he kept up his research and he delved into research also beyond astronomy but also into archaeology but it's real unclear like how much he actually knew about archaeology but he did go on some like archaeological digs down to mexico and peru i believe and so jessup was kind of one of the first people ufologists who started really exploring the idea of what we would call the ancient astronauts Mm -hmm. this was the idea that the the, it, you know, it goes back to what I was talking about with Gobekli Tepe. It goes back to Stonehenge, the pyramids. It's it's that idea that humans couldn't have created these edifices and monuments on their own. So obviously the aliens were here helping us. Right. 
Um, yes. Yeah. This is, of course, got very popularized in the 1960s with the work of, in air quotes, the work of okay. Eric von Daniken, who wrote Chariots of the Gods. Mm. Um, but Morris K. Jessup kind of beat him to it. And he had written this book called The Case for the UFO. This was in 1955. A year later, he was started receiving letters from someone alternately called Carl M. Allen or sometimes Carlos Miguel Allende. Um, okay. Yeah. <laughs> the letters were sent from New Kensington, Pennsylvania. And okay. in these letters, this Allen slash Allende person at first, he criticized Jessup's for his understanding of the unified field theory. But then he said, I actually know that this is possible because I was part of a military experiment in 1943 in the Philadelphia Naval Shipyard, where we actually were able to vanish a ship oh. using new technology and the unified field theory. Okay. So this is the story of the Philadelphia experiment. What? Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay. All right. Let's rock and roll. I'm ready. So my sources for this are we Wikipedia, The Philadelphia Experiment by David Halperin. This is an article from The Revealer from July 9th, 2012. The Philadelphia Experiment, Carlos Allende Speaks, also from this David Halperin. This is from his own blog, davidhalperin.net, also from 2012. Okay. Philadelphia Experiment, basically a long, I only kind of glanced at this because it's like a long, almost like academic thing from the Naval History and Heritage Command at www.history.navy.mil. So okay. even the military has looked into this. An article. Oh, from- that's what .mil stands for. Okay, yeah. sorry. Yeah. <laughs> bum, 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 bum. Okay. <laughs> An article from medium.com called Bending Reality, the Philadelphia Experiment. This is from someone named Jesse. Just Jesse. October 21st, 2019. <laughs> you said this was on Medium? It's on Medium. Uh, okay. So you know how Medium works. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, <laughs> I have an anecdote about Medium in my story as well. So. Oh, yeah. okay, cool. Well, this, this article by Jesse, um, mm-hmm. I will say, like, he's not saying anything that's like crazy, like, internet conspiracy theory stuff. It's like all pretty verifiable from other sources. So, but medium is, I'm sorry to interrupt, but medium is just basically like, like I could go on to medium and be yeah. like, here are my thoughts on. Yeah. It's know, almost like an open source. My understanding of medium is it's almost like an open source blog where like anyone can post. Okay. Um, I mean, cool, but also yeah, raise so eyebrow to that. The you know, you get everything from Chrissy Teigen's like long ass apology to like crazy oh, lizard right. people conspiracy stuff. So, uh-huh. and okay. I feel like okay. this Jesse person maybe falls somewhere in the middle. <laughs> Although I'll talk a little bit more about that article okay. here in a little okay. bit. Um, and then an article from HowStuffWorks.com. Nice. Uh, how the Philadelphia experiment worked. This is from May of this year. So this Carl Allen slash Carlos Allende person, he started writing these letters to Morris K. Jessup. He claimed that he had witnessed a World War II military experiment at the Philadelphia Naval Yards. I'll get to what the experiment was here in a little bit, but let me just talk a little bit about this kind of correspondence between the two. So Jessup was intrigued. He wrote back, he wanted more information, and then he received a follow-up that May. And like I said, I think he ended up receiving something like 50 letters from this guy. So in one of the letters, Carl Allen slash Allende, he begged to have himself and other witnesses be put under hypnosis and given a truth serum so that they could say what they saw. Question. Yeah. 
does truth serum exist? Yeah, it's it's a net. What is I can't remember. There's I'm not sure how like effective it is, but there is actual drugs that basically they break down your inhibitions and make it mm, like the okay. thought process you have to go through mm-hmm. to tell a lie. It kind of inhibits that. So I didn't mm. do research into it, but I do know it is a thing. Okay, so. I'm skeptical. Okay, <laughs> but anyway, Carl Allen he said, please give us a truth serum and put us under hypnosis because he, among others, have claimed that the people who witnessed the Philadelphia experiment were actually brainwashed to forget what they saw. Now, he never, at least I think in his letters to Jessup, never made it clear how how exactly he witnessed the experiment. But like the general thought was he must have been on one of the nearby ships that were there observing the experiment. Mm-hmm. He did in later letters to other people claim that he had been stationed on the SS Andrew Furuseth, which was another ship that was docked in the Philadelphia Naval Shipyard, basically right next to the USS Eldridge, which is the ship that was used supposedly in this experiment. Jessup grew frustrated with, you know, he got 50 letters from this guy. He kept saying like, this is interesting what you're saying, but you need to show me some evidence. Mm-hmm. And this guy just kind of this, this Carl Allen kind of just kept talking around it. He would, or he, he would never agree to show any concrete evidence, present any other witnesses, etc. So eventually Jessup basically dismissed him as a crackpot. Okay. Um, yeah, but that makes then sense. The following year, in 1957, Jessup was contacted by naval officers at the Office of Naval Research in Washington, D.C. So this is an organization within the U.S. Department of the Navy that's responsible for the science and technology programs of the Navy and the Marine Corps. Okay. Um, so according to these naval officers, they said they had received a package in the mail that contained a paperback copy of Jessup's book in a manila envelope that was labeled Happy Easter. Um, the book had been annotated in the margins with writing appearing in three different shades of pink ink to make it appear as if there were three people writing annotations in the margins and kind of almost like having a conversation with each other. Mm -hmm. Um, They seem to detail a correspondence among these individuals. Only one of them, uh, someone named quote, Jimmy J E M I is named the office of Naval research labeled the other two as Mr. A and Mr. B. Now at some point, Jimmy is referred to as my twin, quote unquote. So some people think this might be a reference to the Gemini constellation, but oh, okay. who the fuck knows? Okay. Now I'm going to use a phrase uh, or a word that is now considered offensive. So just be aware that this is not my word. This is a quote. Mm-hmm. Um, but the annotators referred to each other as gypsies. Mm-hmm. And they talked about types of people living in outer space. So I couldn't find a lot about what this gypsy thing is but it was like whoever it is who's writing these notes are seeing themselves as wanderers and like explorers and you know nomads and almost hinting that they have like wandered the universe so along with these annotators commentary about the strengths and weaknesses of jessup's own theories in his book they also refer obliquely to the philadelphia experiment Okay. Um, and they talk about different races of aliens waging war upon each other using asteroids as weapons, things like that. Okay. Um, they refer to a quote, great arc, which has been interpreted to be probably some sort of vast mothership. But due to the handwriting of the subject matter, Jessup, he looked at this copy that he had gotten from the Office of Naval Research. And he said he thought that all of the notes were written by this Carl Allen or 
Carlos Allende. <laughs> yeah, I was going to ask, like, is it all the same handwriting? He says basically it's the handwriting. Uh, it, it was written in three different pens, like mm-hmm. shades of ink, mm-hmm. to make it appear as if right, three but different like, people are talking. <laughs> this is, I'm sorry. But like, like this dude went to the trouble to find three different shades of pink ink, but like wrote them in the same handwriting yeah. and was like, <laughs> I think you'll discover this- as I go through this, there <laughs> okay. are plenty of holes. Okay. <laughs> fantastic. Story. Let's do it. It's a Swiss cheese story. Let's go for yeah. it. It's generally thought that this Carl Allen is at least one of the people writing in the margins of this book, mm-hmm. but really it seems as though at least according to Jessup, he thought Carl Allen was doing all of the writing. Mm-hmm. But these naval officers at the OMNR, they were intrigued enough to reach out to Jessup. They reached out to Carl Allen himself. Mm-hmm. And they actually sent the book. So this is Morris Jessup's book, The Case for the UFO. Mm -hmm. But with these strange annotations in the margins, they sent this copy of the book to do a mimeographed edition of it of about two dozen copies Mm -hmm. that they they were passing around within the ONR. Uh, So this is called the Vero edition of this book, V-A-R-O, because it was printed by a company called Vero Manufacturing in Garland, Texas. Okay. And then actually one of the Vero executives reached out to Carl Allen and said, it would indeed be a pleasure to meet you and to discuss some of the implications of the book. As I travel a great deal all over the USA, it would be convenient to meet you at almost any point. Hmm. So something about this pinged mm-hmm. with the Navy and and I'm not sure what this Vero manufacturing company is, but it almost seems like they may be some sort of subsidiary or contractor with the Navy. Mm-hmm. But something pinged for them. So they're wanting okay. to talk to Jessup. They're wanting to talk to Allen. But Carl Allen was real shady about it. Like he was very aloof. He didn't mm-hmm. want to expose himself. So this meeting with Carl Allen actually never happened. Okay. Now, as far as Morris Jessup goes, things kind of went downhill for him after this. Oh. He kept right trying to write more and more books on UFOs, but the popularity waned. His last later manuscripts he wasn't able to find a publisher for. Mm-hmm. And then his wife left him. And on April 20th, 1959, so just a couple years later, he actually took his own life. He basically. Oh, shit. Yeah. He sealed himself in the car, the exhaust pipe, oh. died of carbon monoxide poisoning. So let's talk about this Carl Allen again. And again, I'm going to get to the actual experiment here in a minute because it's weird as fuck. Okay. But let's talk about this Carl Allen guy. And I'm, all I'm going to say is like, you know, take all of this with a grain of fucking salt. Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay. So he was indeed a real person. It's oh. not known. It doesn't seem like it's known why he was trying to use this alias of Carlos Allende. Uh-huh. Because it's like some letters he would sign at Carlos Allende. And then some letters he would sign at Carl Allen. And his Hold actual, on, is his actual name Carl Allen? His actual name's Carl Allen. <laughs> but what there's the weird, there's <laughs> weird things about him. Like he appears to have been born in Pennsylvania, and like I said, the letters were sent from New Kensington, Pennsylvania. Uh-huh. Seems like that's where he was from. But people who met him said he spoke with a heavy. What I saw the quote was quote Hispanic accent. Okay. He also spent a lot of time in Mexico. Okay. So it's not real clear to me where he's actually from. But like if he's actually Mexican or if he's or if he's American from Pennsylvania or if he's American and then kind of affected this Mexican accent. When he Okay. 
I have so many questions. When he signed the letters as Carlos Allende, was he like, hey, it's me from before? Like, I, like this is the same person, but with a different name? Or was he trying to be like, there's... It, it, Carl and Carlos? No, it's like two seems, separate entities. I mean, if if he's trying to make it seem like two separate entities, going with Carl Allen, Carl M. Allen, and then Carlos Miguel Allende is like yeah. you're not trying that hard. Right. I'm and just it, wondering. When it seems is. like and it seems like his handwriting is consistent across the board. So it doesn't seem like he's particularly trying to hide this but then again he did this thing in the margins of the book where he's writing notes as if it's from three people but it's like all in the same handwriting Mm. so it's like there may have been some attempt at subterfuge and he may have just really sucked at it okay but he was a real person okay he actually had served in the coast guard from 1943 to 1947 so he would have been in the coast guard at the time of the Philadelphia experiment. Mm -hmm. After he was discharged from the Coast Guard, sounds like he moved around a lot. So he had been getting a disability pension from the Veterans Claims Division. And in 1954, they actually canceled his disability pension. And they sent the notice to where apparently he was living in Guadalajara, Mexico. Okay. It also appears that he has lived in Arizona, New Mexico, South Dakota, Nebraska, and then he ended up in Colorado where he finally passed away in 1994. So here's a quote, a couple quotes from that Revealer article. Okay. Um, so the first was, it says, his ambition once was to be a, quote, Spanish gypsy guitarist. So he wrote in 1985 to, quote, Peggy, a psychiatry resident in the Denver Veterans Administration Hospital on whom he developed a humongous crush. Mm. destiny decreed otherwise he became instead a scientist studying physics or at least he managed to convince himself with albert einstein and george gamow so the fact that he's writing songs to some a psychiatry resident that he had a crush on that he had convinced himself he had worked with albert einstein i'm thinking we may be dealing with someone with yeah i was wondering if he maybe yeah if he maybe wasn't doing real well yeah But here's also from that Revealer article, it says, an astronomy professor who met Alan in 1980 and afterward wished he hadn't, (laughs) pegged him accurately as a, quote, sad, frustrated old man who knows no physics beyond a bit of jargon. Mm -hmm. But if Alan wasn't quite the world-renowned man of science he wanted pretty Peggy to believe he was, it wasn't for lack of aptitude. His younger brother remembered how Carl avoided school whenever he could, slept through classes when he couldn't. Quote, but if the teacher had a difficult algebra or calculus problem that needed solving, he'd wake Carl up and Carl would stare at it for a minute, recite the correct answer, and go back to sleep. A formidable talent, blasted almost from its birth, lay within this man. So, I don't know what's going on with this guy. <laughs> yeah, this is confusing as fuck. Yeah. And and it's hard to find like a lot of really like definitive information on him. Like he was moving around a lot. Seems that he was in the Coast Guard at some point, but there's a lot of like gaps and holes in his story. Yeah. Another later UFO researcher, a guy named Gray Barker, corresponded with this Morris Jessup before he had taken his own life and also tried to contact Carl Allen. He was also trying to get a hold of a copy of this sort of it the the vero edition of jessup's book the one mm-hmm. with all the annotations had kind of become almost like mythical amongst ufo circles but it was mm-hmm. pretty much unobtainable because they had only made about two dozen of them you know these were made by this vero manufacturing with the navy 
you know, the Office of Naval Research. But he finally got his hands on a copy and republished it in 1973. Uh, he went through a publishing company called Saucerian Press. So this is the, that great Barker. And then his friend, Barker's friend, a guy named Jim Mosley, actually tracked Carl Allen down in Prescott, Arizona. Mm. And then Barker paid to have Carl Allen fly out to Clarksburg, West Virginia to tape an interview with him. Okay. And the interview was later made available again by Sasarian Press. It was called Carlos Allende Speaks. Okay. So here's, I, I didn't like try to listen to the interview, but here's a quote I found about it. It's from this, that David Halperin blog. It says, of course, Allende says nothing of any interest. Oh. He dithers endlessly about how many copies of the Vero edition were made. He bitterly accuses the ufologists of ineptness for not having tried to track down other witnesses to the ships becoming invisible, which he evidently regards as historical fact. He credits his annotated case for the UFO. That's uh, Jessup's book. Mm -hmm. uh, so he credits his annotated case for the UFO with the establishment of the International Geophysical Year, which seems like quite the leap to make. Mm -hmm. uh, and he demonstrates the trick he used to fake three different handwritings in those annotations. He does not explain, at least as far as I can recall, what his motive was. So he said, like, I was definitely writing to myself, but it trying to make it look... Yeah, and this is in the late 70s, so it seems like at this point he's at least coming clean about that. Um, but he's still claiming the Philadelphia experiment was real. And oh, uh, yeah, like none of this strengthens his story. Yeah, it really uh. doesn't. All right, I'm going to tell you about the Philadelphia experiment and then I'll editorialize okay, <laughs> on okay. my thoughts about it. So this is as described by Carl Allen, Okay, the Philadelphia experiment. Okay. Um, so it was also known as Project Rainbow. This was the official name, the naval like code name for it. It was Project Rainbow. It was performed twice in 1943. So the idea was to use new technology to find a way to bend light around a warship to effectively render it invisible. And so they chose a destroyer named the USS Eldridge. Okay. Um, it was a brand new destroyer had just been commissioned. So here's from the House Stuff Works article. It says, rumor aboard the ship was that generators were designed to power a new kind of magnetic field that would make the warship invisible to enemy radar. With the full crew on board, it was time to test the system. In broad daylight and in plain sight of nearby ships, the switches were thrown on the powerful generators, which hummed into action. And then this is from the Medium article. It says, the experiment was allegedly conducted by Dr. Franklin Reno and was meant to apply Einstein's unified field theory, which demonstrated a connection between gravity and electromagnetism, which some have called electromagnetic space-time warping. Okay. Um, so testing began in the summer of 1943, and there were, they ran an initial test that was at least somewhat successful, but not in the way they expected. You know, so the idea was they're trying to just bend light around, at least according to Carl, Carl Allen, okay. bend light around the ship to make, you know, the light rays essentially deflect your vision away from the ship. So what actually happened in this first test was that it was surrounded by a strange greenish fog. And then later, many of the crew members aboard the Elvridge complained of extreme nausea. <laughs> so according to Carl Allen, okay. <laughs> go ahead. No, I'm like just like... <laughs> 
I just, just so much of this is like, I'm just thinking that they're like, Hey, okay. So we're going to do this thing where we're going to try to like bend light to make the ship invisible. And you're like, you know, a fucking Navy men or whatever. And you've signed up for this. So you're just like, uh, well, okay, I guess that sounds fine. And mm-hmm. then they flip the switch and instead of light, just like refracting or whatever the fuck, a weird green fog comes around and mm-hmm. you're still just like stuck on the boat because you're a Navy man. Yeah. And you're just like, well, I guess this is technically what I signed up for. Yeah. <laughs> it yeah. just following orders. Yeah. yeah, man. Sounds like a bum deal. Yeah. Well, uh, hold that thought. Oh, get to the no. second test, the okay. famous test. So that's the first okay. test. That okay. was summer of 1943. The Navy kind of realized something else was going on here. You know, they're trying again. This is all according to this Carl Allen. And I'm not sure how like changing the electromagnetism of a ship is going to bend light. But again, physics, I don't understand it. Maybe there's something there. You know. Yeah. Um, but they decided. If we have any physics people who can explain this to us with stick figure drawings. Yeah. <laughs> please write us and, and at one the weirdest thing words. pod at gmail.com <laughs> exactly so the navy you know they realized wait this isn't doing what we thought it was going to do but what it's doing is really interesting so we're actually going to change up the experiment a little bit now the idea was like we're not going to actually try to make the ship invisible we're just going to try to make it invisible to radar Okay. So to do that, they recalibrated the equipment and they tried again. The second test was conducted on October 28th, 1943. Now, whatever the Navy did to recalibrate the equipment had a drastic and unexpected effect. So this time, rather than make the ship invisible, either in reality, like to the eye or invisible to radar, it actually dematerialized the Eldridge. So I'm sorry. It what? Well, let me explain. (laughs) The ship disappeared in a flash of blue light, at which point it teleported from Philadelphia to Norfolk, Virginia, more than 200 miles away. What the fuck? Yeah. So after teleporting, it sat in full. This is, again, all according to Carl Allen. Okay. Okay. Sorry. Yes. I'm forgetting. Okay. (laughs) Right. After teleporting, it sat in full view of a merchant ship in Norfolk, Virginia for several minutes. And then it disappeared again and it reappeared back in its original location in Philadelphia. Now, some people have even said it traveled backwards in time. I don't know where that comes from. I couldn't. But I've seen that pop up like whenever you get into the Reddit threads on this. Mm, you know, mm -hmm. The naval people, the Navy officers, the scientists were like, okay, what the fuck just happened? We better get on board the ship because apparently no one was like, responding to hails or anything mm. so they got onto the ship and what they've they been dis- dematerialized well what they discovered was that many of the crew were missing or dead oh. where some of the survivors and some of the dead had like severe burns mm. others had been literally turned inside out <gasps> and several people had actually fused into the hull of the ship no. So they're like embedded in the metal walls. No, the ship. I like hate Like arms this. and legs coming out, but I still alive. This. No, I hate this. I'm done. Yeah. And then those who had survived had entirely gone insane. So this is from one of Carl Allen's letters, I think probably to Morshtepup. He says, and the thing about the Carl Allen letters, I've read some of them, is they're like full of weird spellings and like every other word is capitalized. It's like, again, just okay. thinking we're not dealing with like someone who's all there, you know? Yeah. This is what he said. He says, half of the officers and crew of that ship are at present mad as hatters. 
A few are even yet confined to certain areas where they may receive trained scientific aid when they either, quote, go blank or, quote, go blank and get stuck. The man thusly stricken cannot move of his own volition unless two or more of those who are within the field go and touch him quickly, else he freezes. If around or near the Philadelphia Navy Yard you see a group of sailors in the act of putting their hands upon a feller or upon, quote, thin air, observe the digits and appendages of the stricken man. If they seem to waver as though within a heat mirage, go quickly and put your hands upon him, for that man is the very most desperate of men in the world." Why would I put my hands on somebody <laughs> if they're if they're waving like they're in a, a fucking mirage? Yeah, like blinking in and out of reality. Yes, right? I don't yeah. want that. I don't want that juju on me. This sounds this sounds like a curse. I don't think yeah. this is an experiment. This sounds like a curse. Yeah, I mean, to me, it sounds like very Lovecraftian, which um, which is why, like, I've always wanted this story to be true. But again, let's hold our okay. thoughts on that. Okay. Also, from that revealer article. It says, after describing the terrifying paradoxical experience of simultaneously freezing and going into, quote, the flame, where Alan said, they burned for 18 days, all caps. Allende offers a terse summary. The experiment was a complete success. The men were complete failures. Yeah. <laughs> what? So that's the that's the Philadelphia experiment. That, that, okay. That's, and, and really, it pretty much almost all comes from this Carl Allen. Okay. But let's talk about some other accounts, some okay. other theories of what may have happened here. Okay. So a few years after the release of the 1984 film, The Philadelphia Experiment, which, um, by the way, is not a bad movie. It's super 80s. <laughs> okay. But it's it's kind of a fun, like, sci-fi thriller. A man watched it. His name was Al Bielek. He came forward and claimed to have personally taken part in the experiment. He said that he had been brainwashed to forget what happened, but that the memories, like he had repressed memories, and that they came back to him after he watched the movie in 1988. So more than okay. 40 years later. Okay. I'm going to not say a lot more about Al Bielek because this is going to kind of be a two-parter because at some point I'm going to talk about Montauk and the conspiracy theories around Montauk, which are mm. tied very directly to the Philadelphia Experiment. Okay. So he's kind of backing up what Carl Allen said, but let's hear from a guy named Edward Dudgeon. So Edward Dudgeon was a crewman slash electrician on the Engstrom. And he basically, he talked to a UFO investigator, I believe in the nineties. He talked to a guy named Jacques Vallée, Vallée or Valle. I'm not sure. So here's what Dudgeon said happened. He said that it was true that the Navy was doing an experiment with, quote, invisibility, but that they were trying to make the ships invisible to magnetic torpedoes. So basically okay. what they were trying to do is just what is called degauss them, which is basically render them, like disrupt the magnetic field put out by the steel and make render them non-magnetic. Okay. According to Dudgeon, uh, the procedure involved wrapping the ship in cables and then sending high voltages through the cables to scramble this magnetic field. He said that the operation involved contract workers and that there were a lot of other ships around and that the crews from all the ships like mingled offshore and were, you know, social with each other. Okay. So what he thinks happened is that someone overheard someone saying invisible, like we're making our ship invisible. Oh. And it just turned into this game of telephone kind of thing. Okay. Because it was never about making the ship actually invisible. Mm. It was just about making it non-magnetic. Okay. Um, he said that the supposed, quote, green fog or green glow, he thinks was because of the electrical current going through these cables, it created basically an electrical storm or like a St. Elmo's fire. 
Oh, okay. And then he said that the Eldridge and the Ingstrom were harbored together and the crews often socialized uh, together. So here's what he said. He said, you know, the Eldridge, it's in Philadelphia. And it says it had already left at 11 p.m. Someone looking at the harbor that night might have noticed that the Eldridge wasn't there anymore. And it did appear later in Norfolk. It was back in Philadelphia Harbor the next morning, which seems like an impossible feat. If you look at the map, you'll see that the merchant ships would have taken two days to make the trip. They would have required pilots to go around the submarine net the mines, and so on at the harbor entrances to the Atlantic. But the Navy used a special inland channel, the Chesapeake-Delaware Canal, that bypassed all that. So we made the trip in about six hours. Okay. So that's according to Dudgeon. So he's got basically like rational explanations for everything. Right. But here's what's weird. In 1999, the Philadelphia Inquirer, so like their, I think it's their daily paper, did an mm-hmm. article on this where basically they they documented a reunion of sailors who had served on the Eldridge. They claimed that the ship actually had never been docked in Philadelphia at all. And they said that it was in Brooklyn on the supposed date of the experiment. Mm-hmm. I'm going to okay. come back to that because that's a little strange to me. Now, the Navy, for its own part, has denied any such experiment has ever happened. Right. They said there's no documentation that has ever been found. No records have ever been found of them even showing interest in this. The Operational Archives Branch of the Naval Historical Center has reviewed the Eldridge's Declog and War Diary from August 27th of 1943 through December of that year. So remember, the second test supposedly happened in October. Right. And this is what it says. After commissioning, Eldridge remained in New York and in the Long Island Sound until 16th September when it sailed to Bermuda. From 18th September, the ship was in the vicinity of Bermuda undergoing training and sea trials until 15 October when Eldridge left in a convoy for New York where the convoy entered on 18 October. Eldridge remained in New York Harbor until 1 November when it was part of the escort for convoy UGS-23. On 2 November, the convoy entered Naval Operating Base Norfolk. On 3 November, Eldridge and convoy UGS-23 left for Casablanca, where it arrived on 22 November. On 29 November, Eldridge left as one of the escorts for convoy GUS-22 and arrived with the convoy on 17 December at New York Harbor. Eldridge remained in New York on availability training and in Block Island Sound until 31 December when it steamed to Norfolk with four other ships. During this time frame, Eldridge was never in Philadelphia. Mm. And then records also show that the merchant ship that had supposedly witnessed its appearance in Norfolk mm-hmm. was actually en route to Oran, Algeria on that date and did not return until January of 1944. So, okay, what do you think? I mean, I don't, I mean, like, it sounds like a lot of hogwash, you know what I mean? But at the same time, I don't know that the Navy is necessarily going to be like, yeah, totes, we were totes trying out these crazy invisibility experiments and like, absolutely we were there and, and yeah, we did that. Yeah. So here's where I come down. Like, okay. okay. So let's talk weirdest thing, believability scale. Yeah. I'm going to give it no more than a four. Okay. And I think it's probably lower than that. But let me just talk about like the reasons why I think that maybe, you know, there may be something here. Okay. Um, so everyone points to Carl Allen being kind of nuts, right? Mm. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, if he had been in the vicinity, like, let's just take, you know, just hypothetically say this actually happened. Okay. If he had been in the vicinity or somehow involved in the experiment, remember, mm-hmm. everyone who had been on the ship who survived had been driven insane. 
Right. So it's like not impossible to think the people who had been nearby could Might have also, also been affected. Right. Essentially, what I'm saying is like just because it's sort of that like just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're out to get you. Right. Or they're not out to get you. Right. You know? Right. <laughs> just because he might have had some mental health issues does not mean there couldn't, like, that's not proof that it didn't happen. That it didn't happen. Right. Now, mm. it's not, it doesn't back up, like, it doesn't give him a lot of credibility, but it's not proof that it didn't happen. Right. Here, here's what's weird to me. Here, here's okay. why I think there may be something to this. Okay. That was something top secret. You know, this Carl Dudgeon in in, uh, the mid-90s came out and said, well, yeah, we were doing something. We were in Philadelphia. We did this experiment to degauss the ship. You know, it was a big misinterpretation. Mm -hmm. Um, Here's why the Eldridge was able to make it from Philadelphia to Norfolk. There's this rational explanation for all of that. That's all very believable to me. Why would he, like, he doesn't come off as a crazy person. Why would he make up this story to sort of debunk the story that had been told and then have just a few years later, oh no, the Navy and all these other sailors saying, no, we weren't even there. And here's all these records. Yeah, Mm -hmm. records can be forged, can be adjusted, Mm -hmm. can be lost. Now, if I'm going to say what I think happened, I either think nothing happened and it's all made up, or I think it's probably closer to Edward Dudgeon's story. Okay. I, d- I don't really like this is another one of those debunction junction kind of episodes. <laughs> debunction junction. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, this is one of those stories I've read several times. I've always wanted to believe it and I just can't believe it. And it gets even weirder when I get into Montauk, which I'll talk about soon. Okay. Uh, Cause that story just goes everywhere. <laughs> um, okay. I think there was likely some sort of experimental classified test. Mm-hmm. I don't think we ripped a hole in the space time continuum and sent the Eldridge into an alternate dimension and fused crew members into the ship. Like that yeah. just seems like at a certain point. Yeah. I think that's a thing that makes me be like, hmm, is it that feels like if they were okay again, if they're working with things to be, you know, it's essentially like the technology that's on like the stealth bomber. Right. But like Mm -hmm. back in the forties to be like, can we make something like invisible to radar? Maybe that's a different story, but if they're like, no, can we like legit make it invisible? Like fucking, can we throw a giant invisibility cloak over this warship? I have a hard time believing that they'd be like, let's crew it to the hilt, make sure it's packed full of people and you know, whatever happens to them happens to them. Like that's the part that I. Right. Well, I don't, I think if you go by the story, I think they didn't have any idea that it was actually going to teleport the ship. (laughs) So I don't think like, even if you go by Carl Allen's story, and take it for the benefit of the doubt. So like, the teleporting was a was it a, was an accident. <laughs> it was it was an accidental side effect. That yeah, they were somehow not they tapped into the Einstein's unified field theory, and it somehow created a time warp or a space warp that actually teleported the ship over two hundred miles I, by essentially like think yeah. of it like like the transporter pad in Star Trek. Mm-hmm. Like I read this thing, this is a little bit of an aside, but I read this thing like a few years ago talking about how like how dark Star Trek actually is. Because mm-hmm. if you think about what the transporter is, is you get on the transporter and it's like, beam me down to the planet. What it does is it literally incinerates you mm-hmm. and then generates a perfect copy of you. So every time you transport, you're actually being killed in an incinerator. And then a clone of you is popping up in another place. Really? 
Like that's the, and, and that's they've the, actually, that's... I'm not sure if that's canon, but the thing is like, if you watch some next generation episodes, they've had, there's one I remember where a transporter malfunctioned and spit out a clone of Commander Riker. That's like a four year younger version of Commander Riker. What? So now there's two okay. Rikers walking around in the universe. Like, okay. so basically it's like, but if you think about it, like what they did is create a malfunctioning transporter device because it transported, it disintegrated the Eldridge. Mm-hmm. And then when it reintegrated it, it did it imperfectly. And so you have all these like crew members who are like burned and fused into the ship and stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, st- I'm still not buying it. I, I'm not trying to convince you because I'm not really <laughs> buying it either. But do I think that there was a top secret experiment possible? Now, what's weird to me is if it's just a like, let's try to find a way to degauss the ship. If that's mm-hmm. all it was, why are they still covering it up? Mm-hmm. You know, why aren't they just saying, yeah, no, we did this thing to make the ships not magnetic and that's all it was. Like, mm-hmm. you would think that would be the way to kind of put yeah. the story to bed. But then right. there's this like thing where all of the sailors, everyone later said, no, we weren't even there. So yeah. the part of the story that I can't reconcile Okay. Like I, I'm pretty close to being able, like, like I said, I don't think the fact that Carl Allen is possibly was mentally ill. I don't think is proof that it didn't happen, but the fact that literally nobody except for this Albielic 40 years later, mm-hmm. literally nobody else has substantiated this. There have been no other witnesses who have come forward and said, this right. Happened. The part of the story I can't reconcile for myself mm-hmm. is Dudgeon's story mm-hmm. and the later story that like we weren't even in philadelphia like why there are those two versions of the story yeah that's the weird part to me because dudgeon's story there's nothing about dudgeon's story that seems like it should be like this does not seem like someone who's trying to put out a hoax right but they're still mutual mutually exclusive stories because one story is we were never the experiment never happened we were never in philadelphia and the other story is well there was an experiment in philadelphia but it wasn't any sort of big deal so like the inconsistency Mm. there is yeah that's that's why That's I, sticky. I keep it. I don't put it at a zero or a one. I put it okay. at a zero or four. Um, okay. And like I said, it's one of those stories. I It's it's super Lovecraftian. So it's mm-hmm. one, just one of those stories. I like, it's like the, the Loch Ness Monster. I just want to believe it's true, but I really kind of can't. <laughs> like, okay. Now, a lot of people think it was a hoax. Either mm-hmm. that Morris Jessup engineered this hoax or that Carl Allen was engineering a hoax. I don't think it's a hoax. I think what's likely to me is that something happened. Carl Allen being mentally ill, possibly delusional, kind of turned it into something else. Mm-hmm. Kind of created this mm-hmm. fantasy version of whatever the true experiment mm-hmm. might have been. And then it's just kind of grabbed onto pop culture and yeah, moved into UFO circles and, you know. It's just one yeah. of those stories that's never going to be unrooted. But anyway, right. that is the story of the Philadelphia experiment. That's a big question mark for me. Not going to lie. Yeah. Well, I'll be thinking about that for a while. <laughs> okay. Um, and if you guys have not seen the movie, like, and you want just some good eighties escapism, I definitely, I think I want to say John Lithgow is in it. It was, it was a good movie. Awesome. If you're into yeah. that kind of thing. Go check it out. Find, yeah. rent it at your local uh, VHS rental place. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
Awesome. Well done on that story. Um, I'm sufficiently creeped out, but not in a way that's not going to let me go to sleep tonight. That's good. So there, I think that's the perfect amount. (laughs) Okay. So shall I jump into mine? Yeah, go for it. Fantastic. I am not going to do a cold open, even though you know that I love them. I'm not going to do a cold open. I'm actually going to uh, start with a trigger slash content warning Ah, Okay. because I am going to be talking to you all today about, okay, we'll just get there my whole content warning. I'm going to be talking about serial killers this week and the circumstances Mm. and events that cause people, mostly women, to become infatuated with them. Uh, I'm going to be talking about abuse, sexual assault, murder, et cetera. So this is uh, my story about serial killer groupies. Mm. Sources for this are Wikipedia, an article from Psychology Today titled Women Who Love Serial Killers, an article from HuffPost titled Chris Watts Killed His Family, Then the Love Letters Started Rolling In, and an article from Oxygen titled Why Do Killers Like the Night Stalker and Ted Bundy Attract So Many Fangirls. An article from Los Angeles Magazine called A Faction on TikTok Has Taken an Unlikely Interest in the Menendez Brothers, Mm. an article from Mirror titled From Ted Bundy to Charles Manson, Why Women Fall in Love with Serial Killers, an article from Nerve.com titled Bonnie and Clyde Syndrome is a Real Thing, Mm. an article from Psych Central titled Kinks, Fetishes, Paraphilias, Treating Issues with Non-Traditional Sexuality. Let's get started. Um, So... When Ted Bundy, who Scotty, I know, you know, and I would be willing to bet that most of our listeners know who Ted Bundy is, but in case you don't, he's a real piece of shit that murdered at least 30 young women and girls between 1974 and 1978. Mm -hmm. When he was on trial in Orlando, Florida, he took advantage of an obscure Florida law that basically said that a declaration of marriage in the presence of a judge constituted a legal marriage. So, (laughs) oh, Ted Bundy was like just such a shit bag. Uh, he's, he was a real piece of work and he went through like yeah. five lawyers yeah. during his trials and then was eventually like, oh, fuck it. Like I'm doing it yeah. myself and decided to represent himself. And so while he was doing that, he, one of the people that he called to testify was former Washington state DES worker, Carol Ann Boone. Mm-hmm. And while he had her up on the stand, he asked her to marry him. Yeah. Uh, Boone had moved to Florida from Washington to to be with Bundy and had testified on his behalf during both of his trials at this time as like a goddamn character witness. Boone accepted his proposal and Bundy declared to the court that they were legally married. In 1982, Boone gave birth to Bundy's daughter. I just want to take a moment to just think about how fucked up it is if you are the family of one of his victims and he's grandstanding and doing all of his stupid shit in the courtroom. And then he's like, bring up this witness. Am I a good person? And also, will you marry me? Like, mm-hmm. like the, the white rage that yeah. would pass through me. Well, I don't think it helped him with the jury. Well, yeah, I don't. <laughs> they were like, br- like, fuck done. this guy. Yeah, fuck this dude. Strap him um, to the chair tomorrow. 
Yes. Now bring it in here now so we can all watch. So Carol Ann Boone wasn't Bundy's only fan. Um, Scores of other women actually bombarded him with fan mail. They gathered outside the Florida prison when he was executed. And this was a new fact to me. I didn't know this. It's probably the most disturbing in terms of Ted Bundy, but many women showed up at his trial dressed like his victims. Holy shit. I've never heard that. I don't remember hearing that. That's yeah, uh, that's that it is. I, I don't even know. Like, I, I mean, that's, I, that's worse than, than the Manson family people carving the X's in their heads. Yeah, it's it's uh, it like that one stopped me in my tracks, to be completely honest. Like I I, that that tidbit almost made me be like, I don't want to do this story. Yeah, that's awful. Yeah. Also disturbing somewhat recently. I'm not sure when this happened, but somewhat recently someone got a tattoo of the bite marks Bundy left on one of his victims. I, I think I read about that. That was we, You and I have talked about this oh, because, yeah, because right. I was like, this is like, this is wrong, right? Like this isn't. Yeah. And we, we both came down firmly on the side <laughs> of that being very fucked up. Yeah. Uh, okay. So that's Ted Bundy. While in jail awaiting sentencing for murdering his pregnant wife and their two small daughters, shit dick Chris Watts started receiving letters from adoring fans. One letter stated, quote, I want to get to know you so with four O's so bad. It's not even funny. Literally, you're on my mind almost every single day since you were in the news. This woman later wrote that she She'd be the happiest girl alive if Watts responded to her letters. She signed off with the hashtags Team Chris, Chris is innocent, love him, and so, again with four O's, so cute. By the way, the writer of this letters has two children. Okay. Um, another woman based in Ohio wrote Watts a letter saying, why is someone as pretty as me single and writing someone in jail? Spoiler alert, she just gone through a really bad breakup. Mm-hmm. Another woman sent him a picture of herself in a bikini with the words, so you can place a face to the words. I hope I've put a smile on your face. Ugh. And yet another wrote shit dick saying that she didn't care that he'd wiped out his family and urged him to put her on his visitors list saying, quote, trust me, you will not be sorry. Jesus. <sighs> yeah. Actual literal reeking garbage monster, Richard Ramirez, yeah. who molested children, raped women, and murdered 13 people in California from 1984 to 1985, had a whole bunch of women show up at his trial. Mm-hmm. Um, he would flirt with them. <laughs> in the courtroom uh, and women interviewed by KRON4 in San Francisco, I guess that's the local news station, were quoted saying, I think he's cute and I know that he's a nice person. Okay. Yeah. Ramirez had, even within the realm of like serial killer groupies, people are pretty much like Ramirez had an insane number of women that were after him. I mean, he's, I feel like he and Bundy are maybe the most famous for the groupies. At least they're the ones I seem like, I feel like I've read the most about. Yeah. I think they're the ones I've read the most. And now I'm starting to read a lot about shit dick as well. But yeah. yeah. So yeah, he had Ramirez had an, like just a crazy number of women coming after him 
after he'd been arrested for committing the atrocities that I just mentioned, women showed up to the trial in skimpy clothing. They would like wave at him and like try to get him to look their way. Ramirez also ended up marrying one of his fans, a woman named Doreen Leoy. I believe, I was going to say, I believe this woman was like an investigative journalist. I think that's right. It's something like that. Um, But she went on CNN in 1997 and said, quote, he's kind, he's funny, he's charming. I just believe him completely. In my opinion, there was far more evidence to convict OJ Simpson. And we all know how that turned out. Mm. Um, I don't really know what she means by that. Yeah. I mean, like one thing doesn't have to do with the other, but yeah, I, so Okay. Leoy was reportedly one of 15 girlfriends that Ramirez had after he was arrested. Jeffrey Dahmer, who was a known gay man and Mm -hmm. murderer and cannibal, had tons of women writing him and trying to gain his affection. Charles Manson's entire family was basically groupies. I mean, I know Um, two of them moved to like the town where the prison that he was put in. That's not surprising. Yeah. But I mean, like, like like just to be close to him, you know? Yeah. And I mean, just like the, like the people who committed the murders for him were his groupies. Yeah. Oscar Ray Bolin Jr. It's another one had his fair share of groupies. This is hard. This is going to be hard for me to do (laughs) as I go through this story, but I will say that it's super easy to judge these women as either being like not right in the head or incredibly stupid or Mm -hmm. anything like that. But I will say that once I started to dig into this topic a little bit, it became harder to dismiss these groupies as just either of those things. Um, Like with anything, the truth is probably much more complicated and sad than it appears on the surface. So there are some examples of serial killer groupies. That is not a comprehensive or exhaustive list by any means. It's just all I could stomach writing. Yeah. Uh, So the term groupie is usually used to describe a fan, usually a young woman. She's usually a fan of a particular musical group who follows the group around with the hopes of meeting the band. It's usually a derogatory term describing young women who are looking to initiate a sexual encounter with a famous person. If you have the chance, just go look up groupies on Wikipedia and read about some of the more famous groupies. Yeah. I'm just going to name drop the queen of butter. Uh, Mm. It's a fascinating story. Obviously, serial killer groupies follow an attempt to initiate contact with a serial killer rather than a band, athlete, or other public figure. Before we go further into this, and in an effort to sort of understand exactly what we're dealing here, we're going to talk a little bit about kinks, fetishes, and paraphilia. Mm -hmm. These terms can kind of get thrown around interchangeably. Yeah. Um, But in an article on Psych Central, Robert Weiss, who's a PhD, differentiates the three as follows. Kinks are non-traditional sexual behavior that people sometimes use to spice things up, but can take or leave depending on their partner, their mood, etc. Right. Fetishes are non-traditional sexual interests or behaviors, kinks, that are for a particular individual, a deep and abiding, possibly even necessary element of sexual activity or arousal. Mm-hmm. 
paraphilias are fetishes that have escalated in ways that result in negative life consequences. Yeah. Weiss uses the analogy of the difference between a casual drinker, a heavy drinker, and an, an alcoholic. Right. The basic elements are all the same, but the impact and long-term effects are very different. Right. Just a quick sidebar here about this stuff. There are a lot of things that can be a kink or a fetish, but it's only when it's taken to that extreme that results in negative life consequences that it's officially viewed as a disorder. Yeah. So, you know, you having a, I'm not talking about Scotty specifically, someone <laughs> having, <laughs> as, I, as I out your kink to the world, um, someone having a thing for feet is mm-hmm. a kink. Somebody like needing to involve feet in order to reach like completion would be a fetish. And mm-hmm. somebody like breaking into a home to like watch a woman's feet as she sleeps. That's when we start reaching paraphilia levels. Right. Okay. At its most destructive, what is going on with serial killer groupies is something called hybristophilia. It's also known in pop culture as Bonnie and Clyde syndrome. Mm. And it's a paraphilia where sexual arousal, facilitation, and attainment of orgasm are responsive to and contingent upon being with a partner known to have committed a crime. And for this group, that crime is serial murder. Mm. So there's a lot of debate about this issue and whether or not most serial killers are actually hybristophiliacs or if they, quote unquote, just have other issues. In the endless articles and books that have been written about serial killer groupies, of which there are a ton, there is a just a high, high number of books that have been written about this. The non-hybristophilial reasons one might try to garner the attention or affection of a serial killer might include low self-esteem or, mm-hmm. um, or women who can't find normal relationships, being love avoidant or seeking romantic relationships that cannot be consummated, mm-hmm. daddy issues or lack of a stable father figure. Yeah. The belief that they are the only ones who truly understand the murderer. So that's sort of like the, you know, he might be a bad boy, but he's my bad boy type of It's like a little narcissistic. Mm -hmm. The belief that they can change a serial killer. The desire to nurture the lost little boy that clearly resides deep within a serial killer. There's an idea that serial killers make the (laughs) quote unquote perfect boyfriend because like you always know where they are. You always know what they're up to. You always know that they're thinking about you. In rare cases, there is a desire to experience the crimes of the killer vicariously through them. The Mm -hmm. goal of initiating contact is to learn details about the crimes that no one else knows. I wondered about that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. This one is super rare. There is a small faction of women who will actually take part in the crimes. That's again, the Manson family or the murderous duo of Carla Homolka and her husband, Paul Bernard. Yeah, the Ken and Barbie killers in Canada. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Who uh, I'm not going to talk about it here, but they did. That, some- that's an awful fucking story. Up shit. Yeah. Yes, it's really. It's, I think the, the more really murders. Perhaps I think I saw them mentioned. Yep. I think I saw them mentioned there as well. Roy Hazelwood, who's a legendary former FBI criminal profiler, says that he interviewed four women who murdered people with their husbands. And he said every single one of them admitted to being afraid of the killer and yet aroused by the acts. Yeah. Others think that groupies create these like sadomasochistic fantasies around serial killers. They believe that it's a way of like flirting with danger without actually risking 
seeing anything, it's like a safe adrenaline rush. Right. Cause they're at this point, they're in prison. So they can't yeah. do it. Yeah. Yeah. But you're still um, in like proximity to it. Right. Exactly. Again, the Manson family is a little bit of an outlier with Mm -hmm. all of this stuff, but I will get to, I'll come back. I'll circle back around to that in a bit. There are theories about serial killers representing the alpha male. And this is kind of a thing that like makes me sort of roll my eyes a little bit because it's very like, oh, it's evolutionary, you know, programming that says that women want the alpha male and serial killers sort of present the ultimate alpha male. And I don't know. I mean, I think, I don't know. I feel like a lot of that has been debunked. Yeah. I mean, I'm um, not a evolutionary biologist, but I feel like I've read things where they're like, yeah, that's all real reductionist. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's the thing, right? Is that it's real like, because there is a definite difference between an alpha male that like provides and protects and an alpha male who dominates by murdering. Right. Like they're vastly different things, but those theories, you know, state that that sort of represent the ultimate alpha male and that these women find themselves extremely vulnerable to dominant men. Yeah. I just, I think that's fucking gross. Yeah. So not to be judgy, this is also fucking gross in my opinion. Another reason listed for either dating or marrying a serial killer is the hopes that they'll become famous by proximity. Mm-hmm. So sort of going along, I think that kind of in my mind goes along with the like hoping to gain inside knowledge mm-hmm. about stuff. Making um, yourself special in some way. Yeah. There's a lot of like pick me energy about all of this. Yeah. But this is that like serial killer groupies that have been interviewed, many of them have stated that they've hoped that they'd like, you know, they'd, they'd end up on TV, that they'd get like book or movie deals, mm-hmm. um, that kind of thing. And yeah, I'm, 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 I'm sorry. That's, it's gross. Yeah. Start um, like a cooking YouTube. Yeah. Like- <laughs> open chill like toys or something create one of those like soap like channels fucking do literally anything else right so those are like like i said those are all of the anytime people talk about serial killer groupies they're like well there could be like uh hybristophiliacs but that's like super super rare more often than not it's that they fall into one or several of these categories that i just mentioned the problem is that all of the reasons that i just mentioned are also listed as causes of hybristophilia i was gonna say it seems like there's some overlap here yeah it's all like the venn diagram of a non-hybristophiliac and a hybristophiliac is a circle right like everything is the exact same so like almost every single psychiatrist serial killer expert criminologist dating expert like yes i actually saw i actually heard from dating experts in several articles about this. Every one of those that I saw interviewed who said hybristophilia was incredibly rare listed these examples as alternate reasons to paraphilia. But like I said, every article I read also listed these things as causes and symptoms of hybristophilia. Yeah. It it, it was like, I was very confused. It just seems like a distinction without a difference to me. Yeah. And I don't know if they're thinking like, well, if it's one of these things, then they don't have it. Yeah. But if it's a couple, but it was not clear. Yeah. I like, I don't know what's going on there. I don't know if there's like just not enough research about it or if it's something that like, honestly, people find so abhorrent that they just, they're not super interested in learning more Mm -hmm. about understanding these women better. I think it's naturally like a pretty small sample size of people that you're looking at so it's probably hard to get a lot of like super reliable data 
This is true. I also don't know if it's like a matter of degrees, like the alcohol analogy that I used earlier. Mm. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure. One thing that did come up over and over again in almost all of the research and all of the articles that I saw was this common thread among these women. And that is um, that they are survivors of some kind of abuse. Yeah. Whether they experienced abuse as children or in other relationships, many of these women came from abusive backgrounds, which honestly, this is where I'm like, it gets a little sad. Like it, it honestly makes everything make a lot of sense. Right. Earlier when we were talking about medium, I stumbled upon an article that was just like, there's no way for me to describe it other than just being like judgy as a And it was basically this article, this woman was writing about how like she was very, very good at picking guys that weren't like abusers, that weren't bad guys. And she had a friend who I believe she used the words like I had a friend who couldn't not get hit by a man. Mm. And it just was so, I don't know. It was just so structured as. Yeah. And it's just, it's just so callous to be like, this bitch cannot not get into an an abusive. Right. I mean, that's, that's like the definition of victim blaming. Yeah. And, you know, went on to be like, she has no radar for this and she's like attracted to these guys. And so I I walked away from this thing with like, fuck you media. Yeah. (laughs) Another thing that comes into play, which I'm going to get into a little bit now is this is also very funny to me because so many of these articles, a lot of the articles, especially the ones talking about shit dick, because that's, that's fairly recent. Right. It was a lot of like, well, stuff like this is happening because everybody has an interest in true crime right now. And social media makes these people like very accessible and everybody can see these interviews and blah, 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 which might work, but that doesn't account for every other serial killer who's had groupies. I sort of feel like this whole like, oh, we're so obsessed with true crime now is like, that's a little bit of a straw man anyway, because it's not like people weren't into true crime. I mean, the first Ted Bundy book, the the Anne Rule book that came mm-hmm. out in like the mid 80s, and it was a huge bestseller. It's yes. not like true crime is new. And it's not like exactly. these serial killer groupies are new. So it's yeah. like, I'm, I'm all yeah. for shitting on social media like everybody else. But like, this yeah. seems like a bit of a reach. Well, and it just it's not like last podcast on the left and my favorite murder murder and criminal or why women are writing Chris Watson, like sending him right. their underwear. It, that's not what this is. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I saw, I saw a lot of stuff that basically said that the, the increase in interest in true crime was like, if not to blame, then at least directly tied to serial killer groupies. Yeah. I think that that's bullshit. There yeah, are a lot I, of reasons. <laughs> there's there, there, that just Go sounds ahead. like like hot takey bullshit. You know? It does. It sounds very hot take. I mean, there are a lot of reasons why true crime is so popular right now. And there are a lot of reasons as to why most true crime fans are women. Mm-hmm. But the idea that we are into true crime because we're like titillated by murderers is for me as a true crime fan is, is pretty gross. Well, I mean, it, it goes back to when I was talking about my women in horror fiction right thing it's it's like i feel like true crime mystery thriller and horror is genres are like all kind of related and they do have a huge fan base of women Mm -hmm. you know going all the way back through gothic fiction you know but i think so you know a it's not new Mm -hmm. right and as i talked about on that like there's all sorts of reasons why 
You know, yeah. like, you know, a big part of it is like women were kind of steered away from serious literature, quote unquote. And right. This was like where women were allowed to express themselves, you know? Right. And I think for me and for most of the modern day true crime fans that I know, the fascination with it comes, and we, you and I have talked about this, but this fascination comes more from a desire to understand the sociopathy and psychopathy that take someone from a narcissist to a serial killer. Right. Especially because I know Scotty, you and I have talked about this in person. I think we've mentioned it on the podcast. The older I get, the more I realize that narcissists are everywhere. Right. They're everywhere. So for me and and my own brain, that's the thing that makes it fascinating to me is like, what takes it from somebody who's just like a piece of shit human being? What like, what are the things that elevate them from that to a serial killer? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think there's just, and this is somewhat ungendered, I think, because like, I'm also a true crime fan. I'm also, and I'm a obviously a huge horror fan. And I always say like, for me, it's a lot of it is just my brain is like always wanting to imagine the worst case scenario and i think there's something self-protective about it absolutely like if i can understand like the absolute worst something can unfold you know and for me it might you know be like cthulhu rises from the sea and destroys the universe you know? right then it's like when it's not that bad i can go like oh well at least Cthulhu didn't rise from the sea and destroy the universe, you know, like there's something where it's like you're, you're, you're building up sort of a little bit of a protective armor. And you're also, like you said, you're trying to understand, you know, these kind of dark mysteries of human nature or whatever, so that you can kind of like see the red flags, you know? Right. Precisely. Most of the time when we're talking about serial killer groupies, we are talking about women Mm -hmm. and we're uh, sort of specifically talking about women who become infatuated, I guess, is, is, is the right word, infatuated with these men after they get caught, essentially, Mm -hmm. right? There's not a ton of examples of men serial killer groupies. I was going to ask. When they have found them, this is super interesting. What they have found is that those men groupies actually, basically what it is, is that what was the movie with Nicole Kidman where she hired the young guys to kill her husband? Oh my God. Why am I forgetting the name? The, of that it? movie. It's yeah. more of that kind of a case where it's to like die a for. woman to die for. Yeah. It's more of a case of a woman being like luring in men mm-hmm. to do the dirty work for her. So in that sense, it's almost like Manson, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And that's why I'm saying like Manson is a bit of an outlier with all of this because he sort of like what Manson did is more of what you'll see when there are male serial killer groupies, they get into it beforehand. And well, I, what, I like end up doing the dirty work. I mean, I don't know if you're going to touch on this, but one thing I've always been interested in is like the women who are arrested with Charles Manson, like uh, Susan Atkins, you know, mm-hmm. I believe she ended up getting married while she was. So she, I don't know the story of her husband, but I think he was like working really hard to get her paroled and stuff. And then Mm. she ended up dying. I think of like a brain tumor or something in prison, but I've always wondered like, where did he come from? Where did, where did he come into the picture? And it seemed like at least in that story, it was like through church group type stuff. And it gets to that whole, like, I'm here to save you kind of. Right, 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 right. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, in a similar way, that's the same kind of thing when you're talking about women like in To Die For, where it's like, oh, I'm in this relationship and it's so bad and it's so terrible. And you're so like, you're so wonderful. And won't you save me from this? Right. Interesting. Um, Yeah. Which I think just proves that the reason why there are less female serial killers than men is because women are 
better serial killers. <laughs> <laughs> you heard it here first. Hot take. Women are smarter serial killers than men. <laughs> So you're saying they're just out there, but not getting caught? 100%. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Um, Back to this whole thing about true crime and all that stuff. I think if you were to ask most of us true crime fans what we think about serial killer groupies, our response would probably closely mirror that of Esther Petschar. She is an artist and activist who showed up on the Netflix docuseries, The Night Stalker. Mm. About Richard Ramirez, and when uh, when she was asked about what she thought about Ramirez's groupies who showed up at his trial, she said, "Quote: Well, I'm sorry, but I think they're the dumbest bitches ever." I remember her. <laughs> She's fantastic. She's wearing like little heart shaped glasses. Yeah. Uh, I'll post a picture of her in in social media. Just to let you guys know how Esther falls into this story, she was in the thrift shop when Ramirez picked up his infamous ACDC cap that he would mm, later leave behind at right. a crime scene. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. Um, and she Satanic talks about panic it. Yeah, metal. and she she she's like, oh, and he had these like terrible teeth, and he smelled like a goat, and like she's mm-hmm. she's fantastic. I have seen some, not a lot, but some remarks in regards to Esther's comments, and and this goes into other. This go, I think, also falls into other people that are like, what the fuck is wrong with these women? That sort of frame it as like that's kink shaming. And, you know, mm. you should like, you know, we're supposed to be feminists and, and you know, don't don't yuck somebody's yum and all that kind of stuff. I mm. am going to refer anybody who might be feeling that way back to the part in this episode where I discuss the difference between kinks, fetishes and paraphilias. I think that serial killer groupies might be worthy of empathy, but I think that it's very dangerous for anyone to treat what is happening with serial killer groupies with the same attitudes that we do exhibitionism, right. fetishes, etc. Far, far be it from me to like mansplain feminism to you guys. <laughs> I have a hard time wrapping my head around the idea that like supporting serial killer groupies is somehow an act of feminism. Well, I think that that's a hard thing for me to wrap my head around. Yeah. And I think that what you need to remember is if what we are talking about here is a paraphilia, then you need to understand that this falls in line with things like pedophilia, Mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. Necrophilia. Yeah. Right. You know, we have talked about it before on here. I'm not here to judge anybody who's doing anything that is safe, consensual, and legal. But like, but I, 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 and I mean, like, it is not illegal to, you know, try to have a romantic or sexual relationship with a serial killer. But I think that it's it, it's different, guys. And look, let's not try to act like it's not. I think I think if your argument is going to be like, you know, they're not hurting anybody. Like, I'll just refer people back to the part of your story where the Ted Bundy groupie showed up in court dressed as his fucking victims. Like, yeah, I like, do you not think that's hurting people? Yeah, I, I, that's, that's a hot take that I, I've got to plunge into a bowl of ice water guys. Like I'm, I'm not on board with that. 
So yeah, moving on. Um, <laughs> in what seems to be an interesting merging of activism and groupism, Gen Zers on TikTok have taken to bringing, I'm going to use this in quotes, awareness to and advocating for none other than Lyle and Eric Menendez, the Beverly Hills brothers that murdered their father, Jose, and their mother, Kitty, on August 20th, 1989. I'm going to get into some details here. Not a lot, but some. A quick recap for anyone who isn't familiar with the Menendez brothers story. Like if you uh, aren't one of these TikTokers and if you were born after they, you know, got put in jail, Lyle and Eric, BT dubs, I always want to call them Lyle and Kyle. Uh, Lyle and Eric. <laughs> I mean, they look like a Lyle and Kyle to me, but. Uh, yeah. And I like forever thought that they were twins. They were very close in age. They were 18 mm. and 21 when they murdered their parents. But Lyle and Eric brutally murdered their parents with shotguns yeah. um, in their home in Beverly Hills. Kitty was shot so many times that she was unrecognizable. Mm -hmm. The brothers then dropped out of college, spent over half a million dollars on expensive watches, cars, private tennis lessons, parties, trips to the Caribbean. I think Eric bought a restaurant. He bought like a wings, like mm -hmm. a wing stop or something. It wasn't a wing stop, but it was like a wings restaurant. The police at first didn't suspect Halal and Eric were involved in the murder of their parents. They actually were looking at like thinking that the murder was like mob related until they caught wind of the brothers spending mm -hmm. um side note family members were like that spending isn't unusual like they i think the amount of money i think they spent over or around seven hundred thousand wow. dollars in the months between when their parents died and when they were arrested and other family members and friends have been like no that was like their regular spending habits wow i mean beverly hills family you know Beverly Hills family. Like I said, cops were like, maybe this is mob related until they started to look at how the brothers were spending so much money. And then they were like, oh, maybe this is actually that the sons did this for financial gain. Mm -hmm. um, Lyle was eventually arrested and Eric turned himself in three days later. Throughout the trial, the defense stated that the brothers had in, uh, had endured years of physical and sexual abuse at the hands of their father. Yeah. They also claimed that their mother was a mentally unstable alcoholic and drug addict who enabled their father's abuse. Yeah, I remember, um, I, I remember that trial very vividly. Yeah. Allegations of abuse were supported by other family members. Mm-hmm. Sadly, tragically, regardless of whatever the fuck you think about this particular case, this next bit is just a shame, honestly. But uh, Lyle's prosecution argued that men could not be victims of rape as they lack the necessary equipment to be raped. Okay. Yeah, that's... I, mean, I feel that's, like even in the 90s, we knew better. I mean, did we though? Honestly, yeah. like, I don't know. And Eric's prosecution argued that Eric is homosexual and that the abuse was actually consensual. With his father yeah okay yeah there's a lot of like what the fuck around yeah. this i just feel like you could have gone any other direction yeah <laughs> you know what i mean uh yeah. but the two that they chose uh which are, are deeply problematic the brothers went on to go through two trials the first one ended i believe in a hung jury mm -hmm. uh the second one they were given life sentences that yeah. happened in 1996 they also both got married while they were in prison mm. Yep. BT dubs. So where I does Gen Z, that. yeah, where does Gen Z come into all of this? So apparently so certain Gen Zers, and if uh, my Gen Z friends that I have on social media are, you know, anything to look at, apparently Gen Zers have a sort of like 90s nostalgia. And so there is a lot of them getting kind of fascinated with cases. So like when you mix that with true crime, there's a lot of them getting kind of fascinated with these trials from the 90s. Yeah, court, I guess that makes sense. Yeah, court T 
TV not too long ago, I'm not sure what, maybe last year, posted the entire trial, the entire Menendez brothers trial on Father's Day of all days. And that's when these Gen Z TikTok crime fanatics and anti-sexual abuse protesters went to the platform TikTok to join forces in support of the Menendez brothers. There are Instagram accounts that organized letter writing campaigns to California Governor Newsom to commute their sentences. And there is a change.org petition calling for an appeal of their case. That petition had 115,000 signatures as of May 18th of this year. (sighs) The brothers know about their new fans and Eric recently released a YouTube video thanking them for their support. I mean, look, I do not have a problem with taking a look at the Menendez brothers trial with a 2021 viewpoint, right? We see things like abuse differently. Now. I think it's worthy to re-examine the opinions that were made 30 years ago. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, with like Lorena Bobbitt is, is a perfect example of that. Yeah. However, I do not believe that the Menendez brothers are innocent. No. And I am certainly not convinced that the murders they committed were strictly out of a sense of survival. Yeah. I I mean, I don't know enough about that story to like opine with authority, but I remember watching the trial. I've read about it in the years since. And Mm -hmm. I mean, it just seems at best to me that like there are mitigating factors, but they still committed brutal murders. Mm-hmm. You know, some folks, I don't know if these are the, I don't know if these folks are on TikTok, but I've also seen in doing the research for this stuff, for the story, Eileen Wornos, who mm-hmm. uh, is, yeah. uh, for anybody who doesn't know, sort of like one of the most famous female serial killers. Mm-hmm. Um, she went on to say, I believe her defense was that she was a sex worker, that she had killed men who were trying to, to hurt her. All of it was like self defense defense she in certain circles has now become sort of like a feminist icon mm-hmm. um she still killed a shit ton of people guys yeah like and, she and, still killed a lot of people i mean there's a really good movie about her that movie monster with mm-hmm. Shelley's theron and mm-hmm. uh, christina ricci but i remember when that movie came out it's a good movie but i remember a lot of people saying like it's it's a hagiography like there's an element of historical revisionism to it you know, yeah. Now, again, I don't know enough about the true facts of that case to really right. say, but you know, the movie is very sympathetic to her. I remember her in the 90s, she would pop up in like Dateline NBC specials and stuff, and it was like they presented her as a literal monster you know right then this movie monster came out and it did seem like there was a there was a big shift in how people look yeah yeah i think that that is i think that with the menendez brothers with eileen Wornos, i think that it is a complicated issue Mm -hmm. and there are plenty of victims of abuse that are in jail for killing their abusers Mm -hmm. um there are plenty of so one my question is like are those survivors also getting the same attention as the Menendez brothers? Right. And there are also plenty of victims of abuse who didn't kill anybody. Right. It's it's a bit of a, I don't know. I just, I'm. I mean, like, like the Ted Bundy, Ted Bundy's and Richard Ramirez's of the world Mm -hmm. are not terribly complicated. I mean, yes, like there was abuse in Richard Ramirez's history. I'm not sure there wasn't. 
Bundy's. I know there I'm, was. I'm almost positive there was in I, Bundy's. I, I think there was. I think there was something about his grandfather. I don't remember the story. But the fact is they like brutally murdered a lot of innocent people who had nothing to do with Yes. Them. So in that sense, it's really not that complicated. Right. But like when you talk about Eileen Warnos, the Menendez brothers, I mean, I even think of the Manson family, like particularly, well, even Charles Manson to a degree, because if like that guy lived a horrifying life in his yeah. early years. Yeah. But you know, the family, you know, these were young people, 17, 18 years old, yeah. many of them women who were highly suggestible, who came from abusive backgrounds, who were horribly manipulated, most of whom have renounced their actions. You know, even the ones who are spending their lives in prison have, mm -hmm. you know, come out and renounced what they did and have mm -hmm. asked for forgiveness. And, you know, I'm, I'm never quite sure how to feel about it because I think it's possible to feel empathy for these people while at the mm -hmm. same time like it's not like just because like you said there are plenty of people who have suffered abuse who have never done these things and like I, I i have a hard time with the like get out of jail free card you know yeah now i will say that on tiktok some of these advocates there's a mix right there is a mix of people that are like hey we're talking about two people who sustained years of pretty horrific abuse at the hands mm -hmm. of their father and their mother. They did this thing. Should we reconsider that this was, you know, a cold-blooded double murder? Which that sounds um, fair. That sounds, And I think that sounds fair. But there are a lot of other people on mm -hmm. TikTok, and this is something that like really irks the sort of like true advocates. There's a lot of content out there on TikTok that is like super groupie-ish in nature. Like it's hashtag so cute kind of stuff. Yeah, it's like videos of the brothers from the trials or interviews with like soft focus and like, you know, like cute music and like yeah. the fucking like twinkle emojis alongside captions that are like sassy Eric. And like that is sort of where I start like the, like they're, they're fan videos. They're not advocate videos. Right. And I think it's um, important to like draw a distinction between the two. Yeah. And I think, you know, again, what is her name? Is it Sin Sintoya Brown? Yes. yes. Who was a victim of underage sex trafficking. She had a very rough life. She ended up shooting a John and uh, like people like Kim Kardashian and other celebrities like advocated for her. To me, it seems a little bit like there's a lot of like, ooh, like these boys are cute and like they've got real like daddy energy. And so like, I'm going to make this little fan video and I'm hopping on board this thing. It's just, it, there's an ickiness to it I mean, that I, I, I again, I, I can't get on board with. I remember that coming up with the West Memphis three as well, mm. which, which like, and, and, you know, that's obviously a very, very different story because mm -hmm. the West Memphis three, obviously, you know, I've thought about maybe doing it on the show at some point, but that's very much a satanic panic, wrongful conviction story. Mm -hmm. And there have been advocates for decades to clear their name. And then they mm -hmm. were finally released from prison, not actually pardoned or had their sentences overturned, but it was some sort of legal maneuver essentially to get, they had to, I think, plead no contest or something. Mm -hmm. 
in order to be released, there was some sort of legal loophole that they're able to right. get through. Well, the Central Park uh, like, Five, you the, know what yeah, I mean? But like, well, just with the West Memphis Three, like I remember, you know, there have been documentaries about them and like a lot of celebrity advocates. And then there was this undercurrent of groupiness underneath it, particularly around uh, Damien Eccles, who is kind of the right. most famous of the West Memphis Three because right. he hashtag so cute, you know? Mm-hmm. And like, I, I'd be curious to look at the Central Park Five and see if there was. I mean, from like where I was coming from with that is to the to the best of my knowledge, and part of this has to do with the fact that they were young, right? And this was in the eighties, right? Believe it was the eighties. Yeah. So I don't know. One, they were young. Two, they were, you know, they were all boys of mm-hmm. color and it, it was just a shitstorm all around. The people who were advocating for them were advocating for them because they had been wrongly imprisoned for a crime that yeah. they did not commit. Well, and I, I, I have never heard of any type of groupieism. Well, and I um, think with the central, central part five with, uh, I'd be curious to know if there ever was any, but like, it seems like with the West Memphis three and definitely with the central park five, like these were such obvious miscarriages of justice mm-hmm. that I think the type of people that's going to draw are going to be advocates, you know? Right. Because the groupie thing, if you think these people are innocent. Yeah. Like if, if you're, if your deal is like being on some level turned on by the danger of this killer, like mm-hmm. an innocent person's not going to float your boat, you know? So it just doesn't seem like it would. Yeah. Like if there are groupies in those cases, it would be something different psychologically happening. Yeah. There, and know? that's what I, that's why I think this whole thing with the Menendez brothers is interesting because it's, it's like, like a this little bit of a gray area convergence. Yeah. Yeah. Of advocacy and groupism uh, yeah. that I find somewhat fascinating. Additionally, mass shooters, the the two who did Columbine, like sort of posthumously got a lot of groupies. The dude who did Parkland uh, is also getting the guy who did uh, Charleston. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, like it's, it's. I mean, the Charleston, I would think, would be a lot of weird fucking racists and stuff. Probably. I mean, yeah. I'm sure. But it's all just. They pop up a lot more than I'm I'm honestly comfortable with. But all of this to say that I think sort of in conclusion, serial killer groupies are probably worth more compassion and and empathy than we give them. True crime fans don't equal groupies. (laughs) Right. Like I said before, there are a lot of people who survive abuse and don't become murderers. And it's okay for us to reevaluate like old perceptions and ideas with the sort of more, do I want to say more enlightened mindset that we have now? I guess maybe that's kind of the best. More compassionate. Yeah, more compassion. And like, and this can apply to, you know, everyone from Eileen Warnos and the Menendez brothers. I think it's okay to have compassion for them, you know. Right, right. Don't let it override your rationality, you know. Right. And I think it's okay to have compassion for these groupies because, yeah. like you said, they're coming, you know, from histories know, of abuse yeah. themselves. And yeah. 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 But I do also think that we started to learn something during Ted Bundy's heyday. And I think it's worth repeating now in the light of the sort of like TikTok defense of the Menendez brothers. And that is that just because somebody is good looking or even not bad looking, Mm -hmm. um, that doesn't mean that they're a good person. Right. We have a friend who I saw describe Ted Bundy as, I think, I think she said a potato with 1970s hair. (laughs) Yeah. 
Um, uh, and if you're out there listening, uh, which I believe that you are, hi, friend. Um, and that <laughs> is my story on serial killer groupies. That's fascinating. Yeah. 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 A I mean, lot I know that's to unpack there. Well, and that's a subject you and I have talked about. Yeah. You know, off mic a lot. Yeah. And I mean, there's just a couple of things that to me are just a little bit like irreconcilable, which is, you know, it is stuff like the tattoo of the bite mark. It's the dressing like the victims. It's. I mean, those are things know, that are just, that's hard to defend or feel. Yeah. For. It's, it's stuff like, you know, I don't care that you took out your entire family. Like, well, you know, the, I'm going to come the, blow your the, mind. And The tattoo of the bite mark. It's, you know, it's a thing that happened in the metal world and probably does still happen. Mm -hmm. to a degree there was an era where it was cool quote unquote to wear like a charles manson t-shirt mm -hmm. or like i even had one i had a t-shirt from a band called macabre it was a death metal band and they like all of their songs are about serial killers like mm -hmm. real serial killers and they had a song called night stalker and so the t-shirt for that song was a picture of richard ramirez holding up his palm where you see the pentagram Yes, um, and I wore that T-shirt at an Ani DeFranco concert because that's the type of person I was back in the nineties. Mm -hmm. Probably would not do that today, but like right. in retrospect, looking back at that, the teeth mark tattoo—it's like turning these terrible things and terrible people into a fashion statement. Is like the most like venal, trolly thing you can do. Yeah, you know? like yeah. I'm um, like, I'm into dark fucked up shit. And I used to be into more like shock value -y stuff. But as I've gotten older, it's like, you know, it just boils back down to my mantra of like, don't be a dick. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that's, and I mean, again, like, you know, we can't paint all serial killer groupies with the same brush Right. Um, for everyone who's like, I don't care that you killed your family. Like I'm going to come blow your mind. <laughs> whatever the fuck there are the other ones that are like, you know, I hope that you're doing okay. And like, I think th they seem to sort of fall into the sort of stereotypical female nurturer role. I was going to say um, like for those people, what it seems like is, is it's a, it's a misplaced empathy. You know, it's like empathy without, with a lack of judgment. Yeah. It's, and, like, um, and, and when I say judgment, I mean, like, maybe I should say like uh, empathy with a lack of like sense. Yeah. <laughs> Like, yeah, exactly. Like, it's fine to not, I'm not saying like judgmental, you know, about being like, I think if you're going to be empathetic towards someone, you sort of have to be non-judgmental, but mm -hmm. like, it's okay to maintain your common sense, you know? And it's, so this is like empathy without common sense, I think. Right. And, and that's and like an admirable, like empathy is always admirable. You know? Yeah, but I think, you know, empathy is always admirable, but I fall back on the thing that like true empathy is, you know, like we talked about in the brains episode, like true empathy is really just being there to be like, yeah, man, I'm, I'm, I'm here. Like I'm down in the hole mm -hmm. with you. Right. There is a lot of self-service right. with these things. And I think maybe that is the thing that like, that I really bump up against because well, it's not like they're like, Hey man, I'm going to come and I'm going to like, I'm going to bring you books and, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to visit no. you in jail and make sure that you're like surviving. Okay. There is some individual need that is being filled well, by having a connection to somebody who committed maybe, heinous crimes. Maybe what um, it is rather than being empathy, maybe it's, it's like self aggrandizement masquerading as empathy because yeah, yeah true empathy is like uh, i'm forgetting her name but the movie dead man walking with susan oh, yeah, sarandon yeah, yeah, and yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. she was a nun who formed this relationship with a death row inmate 
Yeah. Based on, but she's she was a nun. Like her whole purpose in life was to feel empathy for those who have yeah. not experienced empathy. But like that was real empathy, you know? Yeah. Like this, like, please make me feel special because I see the like real person in you or whatever. Yeah. Like that's like, that's ego. Yeah. And like I said, it's got real, it's got real pick me energy mm-hmm. about it. Yeah. Um, and I don't know how to tell you, like having a serial killer pick you is not the brass ring that you believe it to be. Yeah. I mean, hot take. It's not good to have a serial killer pick you. Yeah. That's something most of us would like to avoid. Yes. Uh, yes. Yeah. At all costs. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. So, so there's that. Let us know what you think about all of this yeah, stuff. That's, that's a tangled thorny. That's like thornier than I thought it would be. Yeah. Like, and that was the thing is, like I said, once I started getting into this, because it is real easy to have these, like, to have this mentality, like I said, that mirrors Esther's of just like, these are the craziest bitches uh, (laughs) I've ever seen. But then when you start to get into it, it's like, well, shit. I mean, this is, this is some like deeply rooted, deep seated issues that have not been addressed in, in like a healthy and productive way. Right. People who haven't learned to process their own pain. Yeah. Yeah. So don't write letters to serial killers. Stay weird. Stay curious. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, review, share with your friends, share with your grandma, maybe not this episode. (laughs) Um, And we'll see you next week. (laughs) Bye. Bye. Friends will blow your mind with the finest nonsense we could find. Might be true, and that's the weirdest thing. <laughs>